on front page with me this morning, veteran journalist Anne Edwards and Annabelle Lee from Malaysia Kini. Good morning, ladies. Good morning. Hi, morning. morning. Now, the government <laughs> says that they may pass a law to prosecute Malaysian companies responsible for forest fires. This is according to Tun Dr. Mother Muhammad. And a lot of these companies do operate abroad. So is there really much we can do? Well, the keyword here is may. Right. And I think more than anything, this is maybe a message or a signal that the government is sending these companies that they really want them to clean up their act or else, uh, you know, action will be taken. So that is one thing. Uh, Another thing is, I think we can look at how Singapore does this, right? They get the haze as well every year when we get them. And they deal with this with something called the Transboundary Haze Pollution Act 2014. Right. And basically what this law does, it allows Singapore to sue the companies that are kind of either responsible or contributing to the haze uh, that is affecting Singapore. And it uh, allows them to take action against these companies, even though they are foreign companies or operating outside of Singapore. So there's talk that Malaysia could follow. Well, I feel that the Malaysian government... uh If you looked at the way that they handle a lot of uh, trans-boundary issues is that they do have the right, of course, to feel concerned and also they would want to take that extra step. But it is also now up to the Indonesian government to be more receptive to what is happening, which they have fallen short of and come together to have that viable solution to this issue. However, there is also the limitation, Shaz, uh, which comes in the form of sovereignty of both countries. Therefore, uh, I feel that is why it is better to have both countries working together right. and so we can have laws passed in Malaysia, mm-hmm. especially apart from the Environmental Quality Act 1972 that we have now, that cannot have an effect on the companies abroad, mm. you know. So unless this is a mutual one, it is not going to happen. Right. So what is the ASEAN Agreement on Transboundary Haze Pollution all about, uh, Anne? This is actually a legally binding environmental agreement which was signed in 2002 and these are by the countries making up the ASEAN uh, and it was an agreement to which will help reduce haze pollution in all of Southeast Asia. So the agreement actually recognises that transboundary haze uh, pollution which uh, results from land and also forest fires should not only be resolved by national efforts of uh, each individual ASEAN countries, but also through international cooperation. You know, so uh, however, it was only in September 2014 mm. that all of these countries, all of the ASEAN countries, ratified made an agreement, which comes into effect. So a reason for that was because the road map on ASEAN cooperation towards transboundary haze pollution control, it's a long word, was implemented. So ASEAN agreement on this transboundary haze pollution is actually envisioning a haze-free region, hopefully, <laughs> by 2020. Oh, I think a really interesting gosh, note is really? that <laughs> the reason why it took them so long to get everyone on board is because Indonesia was the last to sign in 2014. Right. Everybody else, I think Malaysia signed it uh. back in 20, 2003, which was the years mm, ago. Yeah. And But, but I mean, that notwithstanding, I mean, it looks like it hasn't worked because right. even after everyone signed it, even after 2014, we still see the haze almost every year. And I think... Um, it just gets worse. Every yeah, year. I, think, I think if we do come up with a law, I think, you know, if it is something that we want to do, it has to allow people to take really serious action mm-hmm. on the people who are perpetrating the haze. Well, that's true, isn't it? Coming up, Datuk Sri Anwar Ibrahim says he should take power around May 2020. We'll see what our panelists think about that next. After Nelly Furtado, I'm like a bird on light.
On front page with me this morning, uh, veteran journalist Anne Edwards and from Malaysia Kini journalist Annabelle Lee. And uh, Datu Sri Anwar Ibrahim says he should take power around May 2020. He said there's an understanding that it should be around that time, but I don't think I should be too petty about the exact month. He said this in an interview with Bloomberg Television on Wednesday. Now, ladies, is this constant reiteration on his part about being the next prime minister uh, healthy for democracy? Well, the key word here is, of course, democracy. When you say democracy, it's about freedom. It's about not only freedom of expression, but also freedom to reinstate yourself as one prime minister in waiting. And uh, for Anwar, whether it is healthy or not, but it is healthy for democracy. Why I say this is because we all know that democracy dies when things are suppressed, when things are being kept secret. As we are seeing from this situation, the public is very much aware of what is going on from all the campaigns, from what is mm-hmm. said in the manifesto of Pakatan Harapan. In a way, it makes politics so interesting in Malaysia. Everything <laughs> is sure unfolding every <laughs> single day. But if the Rakyat is not satisfied by this, I'd say that there is an option of having a referendum oh, and choosing yes. another leader. Yeah, mm. we definitely should have some kind of a referendum. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Annabelle, your thoughts? Well, Anwar's only doing this because Mahathir has not given anyone a date for the transition. And I think not just political observers, I think a lot of people in the business field, a lot of investors, uh, they really want to know when the date is going to be because they want to plan their investment portfolios and when they don't know when these things are going to change and especially when in Malaysia, so much power is concentrated at the top. Having a different prime minister can change everything about all the policies and everything. So people really want to know. So it's not just Anma who wants to know, I want to know. I think a lot of Malaysians want to know as well. Right. Now a political analyst has voiced to believe that PKR President Anwar Ibrahim is getting ready to fight for the Prime Minister's post instead of waiting for Tun to hand it to him. Is this within his uh, right to fight for the post since it was part of uh, Pakatan Harpan's promise? Well, I don't see it as particularly problematic, to be honest. Mm. I think this is just Anwar's way of, on one hand, asserting his claim. You know, I am PM Kelapan. Yeah, which is not untrue. Uh, and second thing, I think he's probably preparing the people, the Rakyat, for his eventual kind of, you know, becoming the PM. I think that is a two, it's a two-way thing, I think. I think this is something that everyone expects to happen. I mean, this is something that Harapan promised. So, right. yeah. Mm. And your thoughts? Um, yeah, taking on from that, it's true. Uh, it was in the manifesto, as I said just now. So, it's to instead Anwar as the PM, you know, I, I don't think it's something that we should doubt and I don't think some, it's something that Anwar should be worried about. But having said that, Tun Mahathir has promised a couple of times that Anwar will be PM mm-hmm. and that is after the country is on an even keel. Right. An even keel. And this would usually take about two to three years, you know, because we want economic stability. You know, let's mm-hmm. push political, you know, the, the, aside yes, aside, well. but political stability is all about economic stability. So if you don't have the economy on your side, how are mm-hmm. you going to impose political stability in a country which is still very fluid in whatever political developments that we have right now? Right. Let's not be selfish. Let's look at the people. Alright, now, speaking of the people, Pakatan Harpan comes to the rescue of Sabah and Sarawak. That's a big headline next after the traffic update and 4pm Sukiyaki on light.
On front page with me this morning, Annabelle Lee from Malaysia Kini and veteran journalist Anne Edwards. The proposed amendment to the Malaysia Agreement 1963 will be historically significant to check the forces that have long denied uh, Sabah and Sarawak their rightful constitutional place in the Federation of Malaysia. So Pakatan Harapan says they want to come to the rescue of these two states. Um, what does making Sabah and Sarawak equal partners mean? Annabelle? So it means that you know Sabah and Sarawak won't be just like any other state like Selangor or Pahang. Uh, but that Malaysia would be made up of three components. So you have the peninsula, you have Sabah and Sarawak. So that's that's mm. essentially what it means. I think today a lot of people think Sabah just and Sarawak state, yeah. are just another just another state, and that is incorrect according to the MA sixty three. And that means they can determine or they have full autonomy to determine education, health, immigration, security, law, even religious issues. So mm-hmm. that that would mean that you know the federal kind of government can't really interfere without kind of consulting them first. Yeah. Right. And in your opinion, is mm. Pakatan Harapan capable of restoring the rights and privileges? of Sabah and Sarawak? Well, as a government, they definitely could. However, this would depend on a few things. Firstly, like for Sabah and Sarawak to reach the same level of development as Peninsula Malaysia, for example, budget distribution should be equally shared. That's what I think. And this by itself will incite a lot of debate, which is in all fairness, I do not feel that it should because the initiative is also dependent on how the respective parties negotiate. And of course, above all, uh, the will to have a fair and just a national policy for all parties in Malaysia. Also, the amendment uh, would need to meet the intention and also spirit of the MA63 by having the desired autonomy over crucial economic resources. And this will be seen as something progressive and prosperous. But of course, it all boils down to what both parties want, Mm -hmm. you know. And Asrawa being in... uh, you know, the opposition, you know, it's something also that should be taken into consideration right. whether they have that fairness or not. Yep, and I think two important things as well, they would have to uh, amend the constitution. I think it's Article 2. Uh, they tried earlier this year, Harapan tried, they failed by 10 votes. Uh, that was, you know, such a shame. Uh, they w- But they need two-thirds majority if they want to do this again. And they would need Warisan on board, they would need GPS on board, they would even need possibly the opposition on board if they do want to amend the constitution. Mm-hmm. Another thing, this will be hugely controversial, I believe, is the oil royalties. Mm, right. I mean, I think in the Harapan Manifesto, they promised 20% of the oil royalties. They get like 5% right now which uh, Sabah and Sarawak are saying is super unfair so that will be something that the government will need to resolve because as of now I don't think they're ready to do that yeah all right well it's all very interesting all boils down to money and and, and that's that's a lot of money oil royalties and Sarawak as we all know is dependent on its own. It can actually stand on its own. All right. Mm. Well, coming up, the new foreign policy framework says Malaysia will no longer stay silent on global injustice. We'll find out more with our panelists next. After the news update and Matthew Wilder here on Light. On front page with me this morning, Anne Edwards and Annabelle Lee with the new foreign policy framework, Malaysia to no longer stay silent against global injustice. Can you tell us what this new foreign policy framework is all about, Annabelle? Okay, first up, I don't think it's a new foreign policy. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, f- not a revised foreign policy policy. 
under the new government yeah under pakatan harapan okay. so i think uh, just from what i understand what they want to change is kind of malaysia's approach to dealing with world issues dealing with the international community they want to be uh, as the headline says more outspoken against uh, injustice but but as much as they can so i think some of the examples the prime minister mentioned was like palestine which we have always been you Vocal know taken about. a taken a very firm stance on uh, jammu and kashmir in india and also unilateral trade sanctions these are things that are happening right now they want to be more consultative in their approach to foreign policy it used to be mm-hmm. like you know the government knows best and everyone just follows but i think now they're more willing to engage with ngos even the media even the public on formulating kind of foreign policy so that's always a good thing and a third thing i think they want to do is to be more involved in kind of international discourse about issues and rights and all that sort of thing so right. kind of making a stance that like malaysia believes this or malaysia doesn't believe that right yeah. i think that's a step in the right direction i i've always you know thought we were vocal enough against uh, global injustice at least for the causes that our government feels strongly about but kind of silent on the ones that go against our interests mm. i don't And think that we have actually shied away from certain issues yeah. because it is not in our interest but because it's probably not in line with our values some of it but as annabel has pointed out you know a lot of you know injustice that's happening in palestine also in the gaza states you know now this was something that we were very vocal about you know these are injustices that we can't just sweep under the carpet and of course um, malaysia should be more vocal with other issues as well so i do feel that we are indeed vocal but we need to have a more assertive and also prominent uh, on the international scene when discussing such issues and that can only start by not contradicting Uh, all these realities and expectations of the domestic environment as but well. I think I want to mention something. Yes, so we have been very vocal on these things, but I think one thing in particular and people have raised this, like why isn't Malaysia making a stance on how China is uh, the oppression of the Uyghur Muslims in China yes. in the Xinjiang region? I think during this event, I think the Prime Minister was asked, uh, is Malaysia going to make a stance at the UN next week? Mm. You know, I think the US is planning to kind of confront China and of course that, you know, we kind of know where they they are coming from, but on a you know rights perspective like should Malaysia make a stance on this i think the prime minister did not say actually what he was he was going to do he would not be pinned down he he kind of sides that the question right. i mean if we say something about that that would mm-hmm. really show that we are serious about this new foreign policy f- framework you know this we want to be more outspoken about injustices because i think right now i think the un is estimating some 1 million Uh, Muslims, uh, Uyghur Muslims in 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 Xinjiang are being uh, oppressed, and I think in detention camps. And I think Malaysia definitely has a role to play in 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 that. When we come back, it uh, looks like Anwar wants to review Malaysia's poverty line. Uh, we'll discuss that one next after Lauren Wood with Fallen on Light. <laughs> on front page with me this morning from Malaysia Kini Annabelle Lee, and we've got veteran journalist Anne Edwards with us. And it looks like Datuk Sri Anwar agrees with United Nations. Special Rapporteur Philip Alston, who has questioned the unrealistic official poverty line in Malaysia. So the national poverty line is currently set at nine hundred and eighty ringgit per household per month, which would mean a family of four uh, surviving on eight ringgit for each person per day. Um, so, do you think this is a realistic look at poverty and what people are surviving on in that bracket? I mean. I would say I don't know what the actual line should be, but if we just look at 
I don't know, minimum wage. Minimum wage right now is 1,100 ringgit per month in nationwide. And obviously, that's the minimum wage. So I think 980 is even lower than that. So um, in terms of measuring it, that must be something, I believe. Um, but I think living on 8 ringgit per day per person in a city is just ridiculous. We know in, in KL, mm-hmm. that is impossible. And I think when, when Professor Philip Alston talked about this, he also mentioned that maybe the standards of living in the cities and in the rural areas were also different. So I think if we want to redraw kind of this poverty level, Line, we probably have to take into take that into account. I believe economists have come up with ways to kind of capture that. But again, I think it comes back to wages, right? And that is one of the reasons why uh, we are dealing, we, we have this persistent problem of poverty. I think Bank Nagara has repeatedly warned that our wages are actually way too low. And a solution maybe is to kind of really think about living wage, which is something mm-hmm. that Bank Nagara suggested maybe is like 6,500 ringgit per household per month. Right. And Think that is what they think, and especially living in a city that will an- allow kind of Malaysians, allow the family members to kind of mm-hmm. at least have some sort of a life and not just work all the time. Well, yeah, but tell that to the employers, right? <laughs> mm. uh, what hey, can the mm. government do to elevate the quality of life for everyone? We are aware that uh, the country, the government, uh, is spending between actually uh, twenty six billion, yeah, billion and twenty eight billion a year, and that's to subsidize the poor in Malaysia. But still, this has not resulted in much improvement on reducing poverty overall. So the issue is not just about money or subsidizing the poor. I think corruption is the main issue. And this is something that is so difficult to eradicate. Najib did say uh, once upon a time when I interviewed him, he was aiming for zero corruption, which I find so rhetoric. It is prevalent in every country. In Malaysia, of course, this is very obvious. Once people are in power, they start to realise that there is no gain in being greedy and that helping the poor bring prosperity to oneself and the country, this should be a realisation, then there would be an instant shift in the poverty level. So there is no need for us to be a welfare state. I don't think so. But we need those in power to set the example to appoint people, most importantly, who would be the tenants of this. Well, ladies, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you both on the front page this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Shaz. That was Anne Edwards and Annabelle Lee.